very daring and audacious plan and part of the story as things start to come together and it all looks so good and then there's a spanner in the works. It's fantastic. What a story we read through. And we need to remember uh, that this is set in some very dark times. And uh, I'm you know, can't see, but I, uh, I'm vaguely titling this uh, sermon this morning, uh, A New Hope or Responding to Hope. I know last week Jobin spoke on uh, hope in the book of Ruth, uh, but I really felt like uh, inspired watching Obi-Wan on Disney Plus uh, to, to put a Star Wars reference in. Um, so if you don't know Star Wars, don't worry, it's absolutely irrelevant to what I'm going to say this morning. <laughs> um, Ruth is a book in the Old Testament, and it's set during the time of the Judges. So the book before in your Bibles might be the book of Judges. And this is a a dark time in the history of the uh, Jewish people. The Israelites have finally taken the promised land, all the prophetic promise of this land that's going to be theirs. And they've got in there under the the steam and protection, and that the hand of God has led them through all sorts of difficulties, and they've made it. God's helped them take the land and uh, then all of a sudden they forgot all about him and they're interested in finding their own way and the the repeated refrain through the book of Judges is everyone did right by their own heart. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone sort of did whatever it was they wanted to do and this is a callback to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden who had one instruction, one, one thing not to do, one place where if you go there, death awaits you. If you, if you take from the tree, death is going to surely find you. One instruction, one commandment, one um, rule, so, it, so as it was. And yet Adam and Eve did what was right in their own eyes. They saw, it looks good, I'll take it, I want it, I'll have it regardless of the consequences. And that's the same situation we find ourselves in the book of Judges, at the time of the Judges, that the story of Ruth fits into. But it's like a ray of sunshine in the stormy clouds. It's like a little moment of peace in the chaos of the, the narrative of the, of, of the times, of the stories of the times, of the, the horror of the times. The story of Ruth is... is um, quite beautiful in amongst all of the ugliness. So what's happened? Well, it started off quite bleak. Naomi, her husband, Elimelech, their two sons, they moved to Moab uh, because there was a famine in the land. So they left Jerusalem, uh, sorry, Israel. They left Bethlehem, the town that they were living in, moved to Moab, which was the, the, the wrong direction to go in from God's perspective. It was the wrong way to go in. In Moab, they only had heartache and suffering as Limelech dies and then Malon and Kilian, her two sons, die, but not before getting wives for themselves. And so now Naomi has two widows to support and she decides it's best for them to stay in Moab and she's going to leave and go back to, Beth- to Bethlehem. But we know uh, that Ruth... One of these wives, one of these widows of uh, Naomi's sons, Ruth stays and says, no, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to stick with you. I'm clinging to you, Naomi, because I I see in your life a pattern. I see in your life something. There's something bigger. There's a bigger picture. And I've recognized it's the Almighty. It's God. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Naomi, I'm staying with you for life. 
she says. And so in this beautiful act of committed, loyal love, which is the Hebrew word hesed, she stays, Ruth stays with Naomi and they travel to Bethlehem together. And we saw over the last two Sundays how um, it just so happened when they get to Bethlehem that there's, there's a field and this field is owned by a guy called Boaz. And Boaz just so happens to be a great guy. And, uh, and Ruth goes to that field first. And, and Boaz is like, hey, you stay with me. You stick the harvest in my field. I'll look after you. I'll make sure there's some grain. Uh, and she, she, um, she takes part in what is uh, the, the practice the biblical practice that God gave. Josh spoke about this, how God gave this practice to his people to care for the widows and the poor and the destitute by this process of called gleaning where you go through the field behind the harvesters and anyone who's poor or widowed could go after the harvesters and pick up what was left, pick up what was missed. And in that way, they had something to eat. And... Uh, Boaz is very happy to let her do that and even makes it easier for her. Just so happens that he's that guy who can do it. And then it just so happens that Boaz, the really nice guy who owns the field, happens to be wealthy enough to have servants and uh, people harvesting his barley for him. Obviously, he must live in a big field. He couldn't do it all by himself. Um, just so happens that he's a relative. And actually, that means just so happens that he can, uh, he, he can actually redeem Ruth's, he can redeem her. What that means is, and again, Jobin spoke to us about this last week, uh, it's, it's a, again, another thing that God said to his people to do, uh, and it's tied into the land being the land for the people. So God said, this is going to be your land, and he gets his, uh, the tribes, the 12 tribes, to divide it all up into different portions, and then within those 12 tribes, all of the different families and the houses, the homes, the people groups within that to divide up the land between them. And then it was very important that the land stayed with the family who it was given to throughout the generations. In this way, everyone was cared for. In this way, everyone had a, a place to work, a place to live, a, a place to grow food, uh, vegetables and grapes and kind of to survive. That was the way you survived in a, a culture like that, in a society like that. So again, part of God's provision for his people, it turns out that Boaz is able to redeem, to keep in the family, Ruth. That's his role as a, we heard it last week, a kinsman redeemer or a, a guardian redeemer. And so all of a sudden, there's hope now, I, I emphasize, I overemphasize the just so happens because in the story of Ruth, really what we're supposed to see is that this was no coincidence, this was no accident, this was the hidden hand of God working through people to make it so that when Naomi returned with Ruth, there'd be someone there. There's Boaz would be waiting. Boaz isn't an ordinary guy. He's a guy that takes the word of God seriously. He's a guy that knows that he should fear God and obey God's commandments. So when he sees a widow picking grain in the, in the field, he doesn't chase her off, but welcomes her in. And we'll see what he does with this uh, guardian redeemer thing in this chapter. 
So that's where we are. All of a sudden, Naomi has hope. There's hope in the situation. And we're going to look this morning in chapter 3 at what godly people should do with hope. What do we do when there's hope? And I'm going to suggest there's three things. People with hope plan wisely. They act with integrity or with righteousness or they do the right thing. So they plan wisely, they do the right thing, and they rest assured. They, they find rest and they feel safe. Being resting assured means, ah, I don't have to worry. So that's what we're going to see in chapter 3. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a chunk of the text, and then I'm going to break it down a little bit. Then we'll read another chunk of the text and break it down. And it'll be up on the screen behind us as well, so you can read along with me. So we'll start with chapter 3, verses 1 through to 6. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, so Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you've been, you've been a kinsman of ours? Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know that you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. So, hope plans and plans wisely. And it might not on first appearances seem like that wise of a plan. And we'll get there, don't you worry. But our first thing to see is that Naomi is planning. She's actually responding to hope. And if we remember at the beginning of the story, at the beginning, when she arrives to Bethlehem and all these people say, oh, wow, look, guys, guys, Naomi's here, Naomi. She says, stop, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because I am bitter. God has dealt bitterly with me. And then I imagine with a sour look on her face, she stormed into the old home that they used to have and shut the door and never came out. It sounds like, it feels like she is a broken woman. And for good reason, she has had a bitter life, and she arrives to Bethlehem without much hope. But now she's planning, and actually in the words that she says, you can almost hear the joy, the excitement. She's gone from bitterness to matchmaking. She's gone from kind of sackcloth and ashes to, to party robes and bunting. She's practically writing out the invitations It's amazing, actually, the change, the difference. So, well, I've gone way too far here. So we can see, uh, this is a massive turnaround for her. The other thing to notice here is that up till now, kind of Naomi's not done any of this stuff to engineer any of these things happening. This has been, as we said, the hidden hand of God moving through the story. And in many ways, this actually is a story of God moving in his sovereignty. We, we know the bigger picture of this, that 
spoilers, chapter four uh, reveals that they get married, they have a child. That child goes on to be the granddad of of the guy who becomes the the father of David, King David, who's going to unite this people group, this broken people, the time of the judges where everyone does what's right in their their own eyes. David's going to be the king that's going to unite the people in worship with God. They're going to tear down the altars. They're going to stop sacrificing to other gods. They're going to live a life in obedience to what God has said. So this is, this is like planting the seeds, the, the showing that God's doing this thing in amongst all of the darkness, this beautiful story. It's not there for no reason. It's not just a nice story. It's a bigger picture. God's at work. God's moving. And Naomi can see that somehow God's working in her life to bring about hope. She doesn't go, well, I'll stop and see what happens next. Does she? She says, no, let's plan, let's go, let's do this, let's push in. God's moving, so I'm gonna push in. And that's really key because we can have a view of God that says, God's sovereign, God's in charge, God will do it, so I just sit here and wait. There's no point planning, there's no point acting, there's no point praying. Why do anything? God just does it all anyway, but that is not what we see in Scripture. That's not how anyone behaves or acts. And these characters are godly examples of what we can do, what we ought to do when hope arrives. When there is hope, we act, we plan, we plan with wisdom. And so that's what Naomi does. She plans with wisdom. She has hope in God, and her faith is that he's doing something So I'm going to act. I'm going to push in. There's, oh, Boaz is a kinsman. If we can get the two of you, I've got a plan. A crazy plan. We get to the plan. It's a strange plan. It's a strange plan. She says to her, wash, put on perfume, and get in your best clothes. And it sounds as though she's sort of appealing to Boaz's, uh, like, his eyes. But I think there's something deeper going on. You see, in the culture, she's been gleaning. Part of her right to glean is as a widow. And so the reality is what you do in in a culture like that and in a setting like that, you dress appropriately to your status and your stage in life and where you're at. So there's good reason to think that Ruth's up till now been dressed as a widow She's been reflecting herself as saying, I'm a widow. I've, I've been dealt a bitter hand. I've, I've been grieved. I've lost my husband. And th- that's how she's been presenting herself. And now what Naomi's saying is, it's time to, it's time to stop mourning. It's time to take off the ash and the sackcloth and the, the black robes. It's time to take away the, the dis- this physical display of your mourning and to show you're available. So this is what availability looks like. And then that's what she's doing. But key, Naomi says, you're not available to just anyone. Don't let anyone see you. It's not about, you know, all of a sudden displaying her beauty to the world for some sort of ego trip. It's about showing Boaz that she's available for marriage. And I think, I think it's a good way that we can understand the, the, what seems to us a bit strange is that there's a cultural element going on. Again, this going at nighttime, going in secret, wait until he lies down, wait until he's finished. It's his barley, so he'll be the last one to go to sleep. He'll be the last one to see it 
uh, to see the operation closed. Make sure everything's tight. He's going to go and make sure all the locks are locked and all of that. Kind of what you do when it's your house, you want to make sure that every, all the windows are shut and the curtains are closed. He's going to do that for this barley operation. So going at night, waiting till he lies down, it's to ensure that she's going to have privacy to speak to him. Again, in this culture, there would have been very few opportunities for a single woman to speak to a single man and, and have that kind of a conversation that they're going to have without there having to be people, there have to be people present for it to be accountable, which is wise. There's wisdom in that too, but... This is a delicate matter. This is a young woman and, a, and an older man. This is a, a Moabitess. I mean, she is the worst kind of person in every Israelite's mind. It's really like the cultural disagreements aren't like football teams. It's much deeper than that. And so this would cause a stir and could ruin their reputations. So again, Naomi's thinking sensitively and planning wisely. And she's doing so to try and get the best chances of success for Ruth, who she loves. And I love, actually, what she says. In, in the NIV, it says this, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you? But in your Bibles, perhaps if you're reading ESV, it might say rest. Should I not try and find you rest? And I love this word because it's the same earlier on when she says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you rest, I will rest. This is a key phrase that comes throughout, that Naomi wants Ruth to find rest, security, a home, a place she can settle, to have a family, to raise children. It's beautiful act of love from Naomi. So for us, Naomi plans, Ruth goes along with it. We should be people who when we see the hope around us, the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope that we have in the gospel, the hope that we have in our future, we act, we plan, we plan wisely, we plan for good things to take place. And we trust as we push in, God will, uh, will, will work, will move. So as we see God moving, we plan into that. We don't stop and let, you know, see where it goes, but planning is important and planning wisely. We want to be a church and individuals that hope for our future and then prayerfully plan for it. So let's read on uh, verses 7. Verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was, a young, there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are the guardian redeemer of our family. Let's just stop there for a second. There was a real risk of two terrible outcomes in this scenario. I'm sure you've worked out what they could be already. Um, there's a real risk. First risk, this guy Boaz, we've already been told, is a pretty godly guy. He's, a wor- he's an honorable man, upstanding in the community. Risk, the first thing that he could say is, having been woken up 
and finding this young lady smelling great, looking great, wearing her best clothes is outrage, actually. What are you doing? What if someone sees you? They'll think that you're here to sleep with me. This is outrageous. You call, you, you, I'm a godly guy. Get out of here. That's scenario number one, which would have been dreadful and embarrassing and shameful. Option number two would be, again, he's only human, that he'd be tempted, actually. No one's here. Did anyone see you here? No one sees her here. There's an opportunity for him to act. She's clearly presenting herself as available. And at worst, you know, that this is the times. This is the times. You only need to read Judges to see that this is the, what's going on in the culture around Boaz uh, is that this is not a safe place for a young single woman to be. So two options that could have happened there. But Boaz acts with integrity. Godly people act with integrity. He listens to what she has to say. And I think that there is, um, it's, it's hard to avoid, there is definitely some sexually charged language in there. There's some like, um, what do we call them when it's like a euphemism? There's some euphemisms in there for sure. Um, the, the, I believe the, the way to understand that is that the author is trying to say that there's a sexual tension, that's a good sexual tension that Boaz doesn't act on and that Ruth never intended to, to go there. The reason why I think that's the case is because in chapter four, the author has no problem saying, oh, and then they had sex. Like if it was like, oh, we can't say that they had sex because, you know, it's the Bible and that's bad. That's not it. Because in chapter four, it's like, oh, and then they went and had sex. That's, they're not squeamish about sex in this culture. That's not something that they do. It's a very, you just need to read Song of Songs to know that it's a very uh, pro-sex book. God is a very pro-sex God, actually, because he invented it. So um, we, we don't need to feel like this is like, oh, they're just, they're using clever words to hide what really happened. No, what really happened is there. And the, the euphemisms are to describe that there's a sexual tension going on. There is an attraction between these two people. I, I think that's a good interpretation um, that we can make of these uh, euphemisms that are there. So let's see then uh, what Boaz actually says. What is his response? He's not outraged. He's not tempted. What does he say? Who are you? First thing, verse nine. Who are you? He uncovers, he turns in the night. There's a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? That's to show us that it's dark and he doesn't know who she is. Her response, I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, if you remember, to back to Naomi's advice, Naomi sort of said, do all these things, dress up nicely, go to the place, wait till everyone's asleep, find Boaz, uncover his feet, lie down, he'll wake up, he'll tell you what to do. But Ruth doesn't do that. She does nearly all of it, and then she acts. She actually has a plan of her own. Who are you? I am your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. What does this mean? 
It's not that she's cold. She's not saying, it's really cold, Boaz. Give us a corner. Give us a bit of that blanket. That's not it. It's um, a beautiful poetic phrase, this word garment. I don't know, in your translations, perhaps it says a different word for spread the corner of your garment. Anyone got a different phrase there? Wings. Got wings from an ESV. Is that an ESV there? Anyone got KJV? Shame. Skirt is, uh, is what we'd find in a KJV. Um, it's, it's a phrase in the Bible that happens about 35 times. And overwhelmingly, it's translated as wings. Overwhelmingly, it's translated as wings. Cover me with your wings, Boaz, she's saying. And he doesn't have wings. Uh, he's got his robe. And, and so what, what she's saying here is really, really beautiful, uh, poetic statement that is rich in scriptural understanding. It's... it's uh, we find it all throughout scripture. And as a phrase, when it's used to describe wings, it's often this covering. I found it today, actually, in Psalm 91 as we were worshiping. Uh, and I remember there's beautiful verses in Psalm 91. And then I saw, again, this, this phrase, God, cover me with your wing. It's the image of, a, of like a mother duck sheltering her little chicks or, a, you know, an eagle protecting its prey with its wings. That's the image that we're getting, an image of protection, an image of safety, of security. In other words, Boaz, I'm coming to you and I want to be underneath your protection, underneath your security, underneath uh, your, your kind of... Um, your watchful eye as you protect me. But it's actually, uh, again, uh, used in other parts of Scripture. So in Ezekiel, I think, chapter, I wrote it down. Ezekiel 16, verse 8, says this. Um, I'll read it to you. I don't have it up there. Later, I pass by. This is God talking. God talking to Israel. Later, I pass by. And when I looked at you, I saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment. I spread my wings over you. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declared the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. In other words, this is what Ruth is saying to Boaz isn't just, Ruth, I need your help. Ruth, I need your, uh, sorry, Boaz, I need your protection. It's, Boaz, will you marry me? Boaz, will you cover me with your wing in the covenantal relationship of marriage? And it's beautiful as well because she's actually echoing what Boaz said to her way back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz says, Wow, Ruth, you're amazing. You've come all this way and it's clear that you've acted with this hesed love, this loyal love towards Naomi. But what's even clearer is that you've come and, and took shelter under the wings of God. It's the same phrase. Under his, you've come and taken shelter underneath his blanket, underneath his uh, shawl garment. You've come, and, 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 but your shelter, your trust, your, your security is in God. That's what Boaz said to Ruth, and she's coming to him now and saying, yeah, I have done that, and I can see that you are, Boaz, the answer to that prayer. So I'm coming under the shadow and shelter of God as I see him directing me to you. I want to come under your care and I think there's a little lesson there for us because Boaz prays this blessing over Ruth 
and then goes on to answer his own prayer, that sometimes we need to think about as we pray how we can be that answer, how we can actually step into what we're praying for and be the answer to our own prayers as Boaz is. So the next thing that Boaz says, his response is a bit strange, I I think. He says this, um, the Lord bless you, my daughter. So in response to what she said, she's just put it all on the line and said, listen, Boaz, will you marry me? And he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if not, if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. So Boaz's reply, it seems a little odd because surely um, he's doing the kindness to her if he agrees to marry her. Surely she's the, she's the one asking for a kindness. But he says, you have acted kindly towards me. And he explains why that is. Um, he says, uh, you, basically, you could have gone after any guy in the village. It's quite a compliment. You could have gone after any. You could have gone with anyone. You could have been with the with a young guy who's got it, who's got everything ahead of him, who's got you know security. Yes, we know Boaz was had wealth. He was a secure guy in the in the town, uh, and uh, and would have had property. But there would have been other people, perhaps more wealthy than him. And so uh, Boaz says, you could have gone with one of those guys. You could have married for money, or you could have married. For love, that's what the poor is. You know, he's not got, this guy doesn't have everything. He's poor, but you love him. So you could have married for love or um, status as well. You could have married for status. And so Boaz saying, you could have done all these things, but you have chosen to come and speak to me. Um, And I think what, then he says, and this kindness is greater than the first. So understanding this, what is the first kindness he's talking about? It's that one in chapter two, the kindness of leaving her family, leaving Moab, leaving everything that she had and going with Ruth. That's this kindness he's talking about, this act of hesed, loyal love that you've shown. Everyone sees it. Everyone has noticed, Ruth, that you're like this and this beautiful act of kindness that you've done. Um, We all see it. This is even greater now. This is a man who uh, is very humble, clearly. I love that Naomi kind of had Ruth dressed to impress, but Boaz focuses on her character. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And this noble character, again, this, this, this book, four chapters long, is absolutely full of allusions to other bits of the Bible. But this phrase, this exact phrase, a woman of noble character, is what we read in Proverbs 31 about a woman of noble character. It's this, it's this ideal image of a wife that we read in um, Proverbs. People with hope act with inter- integrity. Because when you've got nothing to lose, when all hope is gone, 
You might cut corners. You might move in ways that little bit shady, you've got to do something to get by, perhaps, or what's the point anyway? You've lost hope. And so the, the encouragement here is that as we see the hope that we have, we realize that the hope of our future that God has made, we pursue what's right, act in a way that, that dignifies others, that honors God, act in a way. Let us be people who demonstrate what a noble character like Ruth and Boaz is. And what's key there is Boaz recognizes it. She acts, Ruth acts in this noble way because she first sought refuge in God. It, that's, that's what comes first. So if you hear anything this morning, don't hear you need to be obedient and you need to act in a certain way or behave in a certain way. It's come to God, find refuge in him, find hope in who he is and what he has already done for you. But then that inspires a life of loyal love. It inspires acts of goodness. It inspires working and doing and, and pushing through into what's right, right, even at great cost to ourselves. So finally... Hope rests assured. Let's just read the last bit uh, from verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Again, I think he's defending her honor there. He's defending their, their uh, responsibility, their upstanding in the, in the town. He knows that people will talk and that it will hurt them. Verse 15, he also said, bring me the shawl that you're wearing and hold it out. When he did so, when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to the town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So, I missed the point where Boaz threw a spanner into the works with this other guy, this other kinsman redeemer, this other family member who's, who's f next in line. And this can happen to us too, that we, we're moving in hope, we feel good, we feel like we have a God who's in control and Things are going to plan and we can feel like that and then all of a sudden things take a twist or take a turn. But here we see that, yes, there's another kinsman redeemer, but Boaz gives Ruth a reason to rest assured. He gives her an assurance. He gives her a token of his commitment. Firstly, he says to her, surely as the Lord lives, I will, uh, I will settle this. Uh, Oh, yeah. And then also this token of grain. Uh, this is, again, a very symbolic act. He's um, giving her this, uh, this grain as an offering. It's almost like a down payment. It's almost like an engagement gift. But it's also a little bit of a prophetic promise as the seed that he gives uh, and sends her home so that she'll be full, so that she won't go home empty-handed, uh, is a little bit of a prophetic picture to the fact that they'll get married and have children and be fruitful. Uh, it's also 
a reversal of how Naomi spoke about her life. She says, I went out from Bethlehem full, but God has brought me back empty-handed. So Boaz, not knowing that, but in the story, reverses it and says to Ruth, you can't go back to your mother, your mother-in-law empty-handed. Here's all this grain. Go back full. Fill her up. Fill, make sure that she is fulfilled. And this is, a, again, this beautiful way this story is written. But hope rests assured. assured. Again, this is the rest uh, that we see at the beginning of the story. At the beginning of this chapter, Naomi wanted a plan to find rest. But now Boaz won't rest until he's settled the matter. When we have hope, we should plan wisely, act with integrity, but then ultimately, even if things go a little funny or things look hopeless again, we rest assured. As believers, the reason is we know the bigger picture. We see the bigger picture. We see and know the one that this story is all pointing towards. The the one who did it all. See, Jesus gives us hope because he is our kinsman redeemer. As Jobin said last week, God makes himself our relative by coming in the form of Jesus in the flesh, in the human flesh that he came in so that he could redeem us, literally buying us back from slavery. But just like Naomi plans, God planned. God planned before the foundation of the world that you might know him. It says this in Ephesians 1. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. God plans, and his plans are for the world, to know him, to love him, to see him. And just like the book of Ruth, it ends with a wedding. This world, our world, our hope is for a future, is for a wedding, for a feast, for a celebration. And just like Ruth and Boaz, actually, Jesus acts with integrity. We read in Hebrews how uh, we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He planned. He lived a life of integrity on our behalf. And just like Boaz, Jesus will do all that's required to settle the matter. We can rest assured. In fact, he's already done it. We're, we're before that in the story. We haven't read chapter four, but the chapter four of our lives is written already when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He did all that was required to save us, to redeem us. So any spanner in the works, any setback, any problem, any fault, any frailty or failure, Jesus has sorted it. The payment for our sins has been made. The power to overcome any obstacle has already been displayed on the cross and in the resurrection. That's our hope today. Uh, If I invite the band up, uh, we're going to take communion. And uh, perhaps I'll lead us into communion. Is that okay? Um, So 
what we'll do is, if you'd like to stand, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, communion is, is at the back there, just at the back over there. And uh, after I've prayed, you can go and take communion and you can pray with one another or pray uh, on your own and take a time and, and a moment. We want to thank God this morning that, yes, we have an example of two amazing, three amazing characters of godly people who act uh, and respond to the hope that God gives them in these ways. But ultimately, we have a God who's already made it possible for us, who's given us a hope. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you are a mighty and merciful God. Lord, we thank you that you planned before the foundation of the world that we could know you that we could have a relationship with you. Lord, and the only thing we need do is say yes. The only thing we need do is come humbly to your feet and say, I'm your servant. Here I am. Lord, we are your servants and we love you this morning for what you have done. Lord, we thank you that your body broken for us. Lord, means we can have life. Lord, your blood shed for us means we can have hope. Our shame is gone. Our guilt is gone. Our sin is no more in Jesus. Thank you for the hope we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.